Thank you, worship team. Well, hey, if you have a Bible with you or your scripture journal in Exodus, turn to Exodus chapter 1. And if not, that's all right. You can look on the screens with us. We'll have the scripture up there for you. But we are so excited to begin our fall sermon series as we look at the book of Exodus, Rescued and Redeemed. That's the title of the series we're looking at because that's really the theme of Exodus, how God rescues his people and redeems us and makes us his own. And so that's where we're going to be today in Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 10. But before we dig into that, uh, let me pray and ask the Lord Jesus to bless his word as we read it today, as we listen, and help us to truly understand it and apply it to our lives. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful again that we get to come here today and worship your name. Jesus, it is because of you that we are here. It's because of you that we can even live and experience hope in this world, that we can have our eyes set on eternity. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do just that as we look at this great epic story, the story of Exodus. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would strengthen our faith. Lord Jesus, that you would show us who you are and who we must be in light of that, how we have been rescued and redeemed through your blood, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Exodus is really the kind of story that Hollywood loves. See, Hollywood loves the stories in Exodus because they're action-packed, right? So, Many of you growing up, you remember watching the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, right? You probably remember that. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, I don't know if that's what Moses looked like, right? He may not have been quite as chiseled and, you know, ruggedly handsome as Charlton Heston, okay? But who knows, right? And then you've got The Prince of Egypt. That was probably more my generation when we were kids, the cartoon version, you know, and you see see Moses growing up in, in Egypt and all these things. And so, you know, Hollywood loves that because they love to capitalize on the epic action that we're going to see over these next several weeks and months in Exodus. And hey, I'm excited to to talk about and preach those stories, of course, but the real story of Exodus is so much more than just those big, epic adventures and action scenes. You know, any really successful movie typically has a sequel to it, right? And then if a movie is even more successful, they may make a prequel to it, right? Because you can't get enough of the story. You just want to know how everything ends and how it began. You want to know the backstory, right? So Star Wars, you know what I mean? Like the original series was kind of in the middle. They've made sequels, they've made prequels. And we all agree the original is still the best, right? Of course. Well, here's the thing about the book of Exodus. It is both a sequel and a prequel. It's a sequel to Genesis. It shows us how God continues his redemptive mission with Abraham's family. But it's also a prequel. It is a prequel to the rest of God's mission in the Bible and especially leading to Jesus and the gospel. So today we're going to start in Exodus chapter 1 verse 1. And as we walk through the first chapter and into the second chapter today, I want you to listen closely to this story, and I'm going to go ahead and warn you, there's some graphic stuff in this. We're going to hit the ground running today. Exodus dives deep 
into the harsh realities of the human soul. And we see the greatness of evil here in these first, the first chapter. But we have some backstory to discuss as well. So let, let's get going here. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Isaacar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So let's stop right there and let's talk about the backstory here. Who is this family? Why is the book of Exodus beginning with this quick little family tree here? Why are they so important? Why are they in Egypt? Why is that significant? Well, like I said, this is Exodus as a sequel to the book of Genesis. So let's, let's recap the book of Genesis real quick, all right? You see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created a good creation for humanity to thrive in. He gave us everything we needed to thrive. But the first humans, Adam and Eve, decided that what God gave them was not enough. That living in the presence of God, and that's, that's important to understand. In the Garden of Eden, God lived with Adam and Eve. They lived in his presence. They were able to talk to him and walk with him and approach him. But because God was not enough for them, right, they chose a different course. They wanted to be their own captain. They wanted to be their own ruler and their own authority. And so they departed from God's design for their lives. And the Bible calls that departure from God's goodness and his design and God himself, the Bible calls that sin. And what sin does when we live outside of God's design for us, when we disobey him and, and he's not enough for us and we turn to other things to worship them instead of him, that sin in our lives separates us from God. And so that's exactly what happened to the first humans. Sin separated the human race as a whole, all of us. Humanity was separated from its creator. We could no longer live with God. So that's very bad news for the human race. But then we come to Genesis chapter 12. God did not leave the human race with no hope of rescue from this great dilemma. God had a plan to rescue and redeem humanity from the power of sin and the consequence of eternal death and separation from God. He initiated that plan with one man named Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Look at this. Now the Lord said to Abram, as he was known at the time, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, what God is telling Abraham here is that through his family, God would form a people for himself. 
God would form a people for himself to enjoy living in his presence. Who would know and acknowledge to the rest of the world that God is enough. That his goodness is all we ever needed or wanted. That living in the presence of God, that nothing could be better. That obeying him and following him, that nothing could be better. So God was going to form not just a family, but that family would turn into a nation. And that nation, their responsibility was to show the rest of the world how to worship the one true God. How to love him. How to live in his presence. That promise also came with a previous promise God made very early on to Adam and Eve that eventually, eventually one of their offspring would defeat sin and death forever so that there finally would never be another barrier of sin between us and God allowing us to live in his presence forever. So that family, that family in the book of Genesis, that's the family that Exodus 1 is talking about. They're so special. These people are God's chosen representatives in a dark world. His light for a dark world to see. So one of Abraham's great-grandsons, Joseph, ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt. He was second in command of the whole nation under Pharaoh himself. Then Joseph brings his family to live with him in Egypt during this great famine in that part of the world in the ancient times. Verse 5 tells us that there were 70 people. So now you have God's chosen family, 70 people in this family, representatives of him living in a foreign land, but not just any land, Egypt, the greatest superpower of the world at that time. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel, is what they were known as, the people of Israel, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You see, God is continuing to bless Abraham's family, who is now this large family known as the people of Israel, the Hebrew people also they were known as. But for this family to become a nation, as God promised Abraham, they will need a land of their own, right? Egypt cannot be their nation. That belongs to the Egyptians. They're going to need laws to govern them, and they're going to need a leader to help rule them and lead them to love the Lord, none of which they currently have. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. See, this new Pharaoh in Egypt, he has no personal ties with Joseph. He doesn't know him. All that generation has died and gone. So now the Israelites, also known as the Hebrews, Pharaoh has this thought. Oh, these people are becoming more and more. They're, they're populating. They're growing. They're spreading around our country. 
What if they decide to join up with one of our enemies and then we're done? Then everything I've built will be over. It'll all come crashing down. And so he has this growing concern that his superpower will somehow be defeated. He's worried. And so this intense desire for power that Pharaoh has, this hunger to remain stable with the nation he has built and his forefathers have built, this this need to be superior over others leads him to a very violent and evil action. He decides to mistreat the Israelite people very harshly to prevent an uprising. Look at this, verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Joseph Joseph and his family were once so highly regarded in Egypt. Joseph was prime minister of the country. And now his own descendants are being forced to be slaves and overpowered by this evil dictator. And unfortunately, it gets much worse. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son... You shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. See, this this unimaginable act of infant genocide is one of the most evil and horrific parts of world history, what we're reading right now. Pharaoh cannot stand the thought of losing power, so it eventually leads him to this. But the two Hebrew midwives, look what they do. This is remarkable. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. What amazing faith and courage that takes. These women of God to stand up for what's right. Even if it means losing their own lives, they were willing to risk it all so that some should live. But Pharaoh is not happy with this, of course. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I have to chuckle a little bit there because in other words, they're saying, our women are tough, okay? (laughs) Listen, I've been, you know, I've been through four births of my children and it was exhausting, okay? It is, I can tell you. So you do have to be tough. All right, verse 20. (laughs) So God dealt, my wife's not in here, y'all, please don't tell her that. Okay, so God dealt well 
God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son. Now this is to everybody, notice this. This isn't just to the midwives now, now he's speaking to the whole land. Everyone under my reign, he says, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, the Nile River. But you shall let every daughter live. God continued to increase this family, which upsets Pharaoh and makes him more determined. And now everybody is commanded to do and perform infant genocide, to throw newborn babies into a river. God's people are now in their darkest hour. They need to be rescued from this evil dictator, from this bondage. But how in the world could they get out of this? How in the world could you escape from the greatest ruler of the greatest superpower in the world? Well, look at this, verse, or Exodus chapter 2. I'm just going to read down through verse 10 real quick. Because I want you to hear this and understand. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and, and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses. This one Hebrew child escaping the genocide in Egypt, allowed to live. Will this Hebrew baby, now growing up in Pharaoh's own house, Will this, will this be the rescuer that Israel needs to bring them out of this bondage? We're going to have to wait and see. But here's the thing for today. As we, as we stop right here, we pause right here in the story, I want us to look at really the two major themes of, of this story today, but also these are two major themes that really permeate throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. The first one is this. So if you're taking notes in your Exodus scripture journal, write this down. Number one, the enslaving power of sin. That's the first theme that we see in this story today and throughout Exodus. 
we see the enslaving power of sin. You see, sin is a power. Sin is a powerful force that enslaves us. Satan himself is very crafty, as he always has been, as he was in the Garden of Eden, and he is today. And in this story today, we see how Satan has designed sin to enslave us. You see, it happens progressively. It doesn't happen overnight. The first thing we see in the enslaving power of sin is that sin seeks to rule. In this progression, sin seeks to first rule over your heart. You see, Pharaoh is the perfect example of this. The power of sin sought to rule over his heart, but look at how it started. In Exodus 1, verses 9 and 10, look at those verses again. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You see, Pharaoh does not worship the one true creator God. Now, he has lots of other gods. He has statues in his home and in his temples, in the pyramids. He has these statues of all these gods that... Egypt thought of and created in their own minds. But I don't think those are his real gods. I think if you look at verses 9 and 10, you see what Pharaoh's real gods are. His real gods are power. He worships power. He worships stability. He worships superiority. Those are his gods. That's his true sin. He needs those things. He must have those things. Instead of turning to God for his stability, instead of letting God's power and greatness be enough for him, he wants his own. He wants his own identity in this world. He is instead ruled by those desires. Ironically, Pharaoh even though he is enslaving others to get what he wants, he's the one who is actually enslaved to his own sin and he doesn't even know it. He answers to these desires of his heart. He submits to whatever they say, whatever they demand. Metaphorically, you could look at this and say, Pharaoh is a personification of the power of sin in our lives. As Pharaoh ruled over the Israelites, our sin seeks to rule over us. It demands that you listen. It demands that you heed what it says and obey its voice. And if we submit to the desires of our own hearts, just like Pharaoh, you will see your heart being ruled by something other than the Lord. You see, this is tricky. This is tricky because on the surface, your life may look completely normal. And when I say normal, I mean, you know, you just look like another middle-class American who is, you know, living their lives and trying hard and trying to pay your bills and trying to do all these things. We're all kind of in that same boat together. And so on the outset, you may say, well, I don't have 
sin ruling over my heart. Think about what makes you angry. When you feel like something in your life is threatened, something you must have, some kind of power over another person, some kind of superiority over another person, maybe you feel like you need stability and comfort and financial success, and so you worship those things, and those things speak to your heart. And everything you do in your life is actually not governed by God and His good laws and His good rules and His goodness. His design for you, your heart is actually listening to other things, other gods, just as Pharaoh's. That's what sin starts as. It starts as desire that begins to get inside your mind and get inside your heart and make you believe that you must have these things in order to be happy. But sin doesn't stop there. Not only does sin seek to rule, it also seeks to ruin. You see, this story today is hard to read. To think about the horrific atrocities that were carried out by Pharaoh against the Israelites, it's disgusting. To think of what those Hebrew moms and dads were going through. They were not only working from dusk to dawn, they were, they were so tired. And then they would be pregnant and be excited to welcome a new child into the world. And then an evil dictator commands that that baby be thrown into a river. You can only imagine the, the horror What could drive one human to treat another with such dehumanizing cruelty? What would drive Pharaoh to want to treat other humans like that? This is a terrible example of history that we see. And unfortunately, there's even more recent examples of history where we see humanity treating others with dehumanization and cruelty. One of the dark, darkest spots of U.S. history is the fact that so many African Americans were enslaved in our own country. That one person could treat another like that is despicable, it's disgusting. Not that long ago in the 1940s, we see, we see Hitler in Nazi Germany dehumanizing other humans, treating them as if they're just a piece of trash. Today's September 11th. We think about, we remember those who lost their lives on that morning 20-something years ago today. We think about how could, how could evil do that? How could someone do that? I want you to know that the only answer to any of those things is sin. That's it. It's the power of sin that not only seeks to rule someone's heart, but to ruin. It causes ruin in their own lives, though they may not see it yet. Pharaoh does not see the ruin that's coming to himself. But what sin also does is it seeks to rule and ruin others' lives through you. 
When you obey and submit to the desires of your heart that go against God's design, you may think it's okay. You may think you're getting away with it. You may think it's not a big deal. It's not harming anybody else, but eventually it will. When sin rules, it ruins. If you leave it unchecked, if not restrained, every sin will seek to ruin you and the people you love. James chapter 1 talks about this very thing in verses 14 and 15. Look on the screen. James tells us, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Just like Pharaoh. Just like all the other evil examples of history. Just like our own hearts. Then, verse 15, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth so much happiness and everything you thought it would. No. Death. You see, without God, without any societal restraint, a dictator like Pharaoh, his sin is going to grow and eventually it's going to ruin people's lives. Now, you may think that example is extreme, and all those examples you gave us are extreme. That seems far-fetched from my personal world right now in the 21st century, but the principle and the power of sin, the same power that was at work in Pharaoh's heart is no different than the power of sin that rests in your heart when you lay your head on your pillow at night, gone unconfessed, that you haven't admitted to the Lord, that you're struggling with, and you're listening to it. It's the same. Here's what James 1 verses 14 and 15 teaches us. Listen closely. It teaches us that every thought, every desire that we have will evolve if we don't kill it. Listen to this. Every thought or desire of hate in your heart left unchecked with no restraints in any regard would become murder. Hate, the thought of hate, would eventually evolve into murder if given the opportunity. Sin is a freight train that doesn't stop. Every lustful desire in your heart would become adultery if you let it. Every lie that you've ever told would become to full-blown fraud and deception if you let it. Here's the bottom line. I know this is serious, but the story today is serious. God's people, God's people were in their darkest hour. They needed some kind of help. Will it come? But what about you? Maybe, maybe sin has left you in a dark place. And maybe that dark place is just your own heart and mind right now. And it hasn't evolved into those actions. But if you do not let the Holy Spirit of God enter your heart and your mind through the Word of God, confession and repentance, talking to God about your struggles, about your desires, about the evil things you think about, about the evil things that you wish upon others, if you do not confess that sin to the Lord, it's going to continue to grow. Maybe... You are in that dark place either now and you're experiencing it currently or in the past. Maybe your past life, you still feel the weight 
of past sin and you feel that guilt and that shame, it just keeps bubbling up in your heart and mind. And, this, and Satan loves to remind you of all the bad things you've ever done. And it makes you anxious because you feel like God can't use somebody who's done things like you. The question we're lingering with is, is, is there any hope for us to be rescued? Is there any hope for redemption? And the answer is yes. That brings us to the second theme we see. The first one is dark and depressing. The enslaving power of sin. But we also see in this story, you may have not noticed because we read through it, but look at this, the hope of rescue and redemption. You know, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was, it's not in existence today, but it, it was the lighthouse of Alexandria, Egypt. This lighthouse was built long after the book of Exodus happened. But still, nonetheless, this lighthouse in Alexandria, Egypt, was over 300 feet tall. And it would guide sailors in the Mediterranean Sea, in the darkness of the ancient world, with no other light, no electricity. It would guide them to safe harbor there in Alexandria. Surrounded by darkness, you can only imagine a fisherman out in the Mediterranean, miles off the coast, surrounded all around you, utter darkness. But then you see, for the first glimpse, you see that light. So what do you do? You follow the light. You see, the Hebrew midwives in this story who stood up to Pharaoh in an otherwise terrible story of darkness are a light, a glimmer that we can see in the distance, giving us that, giving us the sense of hope that humans don't have to live in slavery to sin. But what is the key to understanding this? Verse 17 tells us that the midwives feared God. You see, to fear God does not mean that you are afraid of him. It means you submit to him out of reverence and awe of who he is. You acknowledge he is the Lord of your life. It means you turn from your sin and trust that God is better than anything sin has ever promised you. Seeing these women of God stand up for what is right and not submit to the power of sin gives us a glimmer of hope that there is some kind of hope for humanity. That Pharaoh can be defeated. That sin can be defeated. But there must, there may be another clue here. You see, these midwives stood up for what was right and, and just even though even though it meant angering Pharaoh and possibly losing their own lives. Can you imagine the courage it took for them to come to Pharaoh and say, yeah, we didn't do that. We didn't kill those babies like you asked us to. They put their lives at risk to save others, to save these Hebrew children. And I think that might serve as a clue to us, to Exodus being the prequel. And we already talked about how it's a sequel to Genesis, but did you know? Exodus is also a prequel to the rest of this redemption story that God is pursuing. Here's what I mean. I mentioned the promise, the promise God made to Adam and Eve. After sin entered the world, before everything completely fell apart, God told them, he said, I'm going to send an offspring. 
One of your descendants will crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin and evil forever. Oh, the serpent may bruise his heel, but he will stomp down on his head and crush the power of sin. You see, the record of Moses' birth here perhaps brings hope to this promise. But I got news for you. Moses is not the Savior. Moses is not the offspring of promise. But there would be a descendant from this same family who would be. And this story foreshadows that. Because you see this? Maybe you caught on to this when Ken read the scripture during worship. Many years later, there would be another infant genocide in the Middle East, in Palestine. Descendants of this same family of Abraham who lived in Egypt, a mom and a dad would have a baby boy. They would have to flee to Egypt so that they could escape the genocide in Palestine to save their Hebrew child named Jesus. Later on, once it was safe to return, just like God led his people, Israel, out of Egypt, God brought Mary and Joseph and Jesus, Jesus out of Egypt. You see, Jesus coming out of Egypt symbolizes that he is the greater and truer Israel. He did what Israel could not do. Throughout the book of Exodus, we're going to see Israel failing over and over. Even though God rescues and delivers them, they're going to fail him over and over. Yet Jesus, the greater Israel, the true Israel, comes out of Egypt into where the promised land would be. And he obeys perfectly and faithfully as Israel could not do. Jesus submits to God every step of the way. You see, like Moses, Jesus would also lead his people out of slavery, but it's a different kind. It's spiritual slavery. You see, the Hebrew midwives were willing to put their lives on the line for the lives of those Hebrew children. And what does that remind you of? Jesus himself was willing to put his life on the line, and he did. He lost his life. He submitted his life as a ransom, as a payment for our sin. He died in your place so that you don't have to be enslaved to your sin, so that you can live in the presence of God forever. Jesus did what Israel could not do. Jesus did what Moses could not do. Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, came to set the captives free. So now you, you can escape this slavery, this rule, this ruin that sin brings. You don't have to live under that child of God. Listen to John chapter eight. John chapter eight, verses 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. They're just thinking of them, their own personal lives. Like, we, we're not slaves to anybody. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus explains they can't understand 
Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, right? That's what we just talked about. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Verse 36, so here's the deal. If you know the son, if you know the son, if you have a personal relationship with the son of God, so if the son sets you free, it doesn't matter what lies Satan tells you at night. It doesn't matter when you wake up in the morning and you feel that sense of guilt and shame of something you've done in your past that you've repented of and is no longer a part of you. It doesn't matter what you are enticed or those desires that you have. They don't have to rule you, child of God, because if the Son has declared you free, you will be free indeed, Jesus says. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 7. Let's go a little deeper here into the gospel. Paul says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul then says in verse 14 of the same chapter, for sin, listen to this, This should be the most encouraging words you hear all week from the word of God. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Boy, I hope that's true for you. I hope that's true for you. I hope that you see the goodness of God and that everything he offers is so much better the benefits of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and worshiping him and devoting your life to him instead of anything else in this world that he is enough that his goodness will reign forever that he wants to live with you forever that he will forgive you of your sins have you trusted Jesus Christ to be that for you? Or do you think that somehow you can work your way up to God? That somehow, if you're good enough, that you can please Him and earn His approval? It won't work. We should be like the Hebrew midwives. We should live as a light in this dark world for Christ. You know, the world is watching. The world is watching Christians to see. They just can't wait for us to mess up. And let me tell you something. Oh, we're going to mess up. Listen, don't get me wrong. We all, as Christians who follow Jesus and love him, we're still going to struggle with this sin. As long as we're in these earthly bodies, as long as we're on this sinful earth, guess what? It's going to be a struggle. But you don't have to be ruled by it. You don't have to answer to it. God is calling you, child of God, to be a light in the dark world for him. Just as those midwives stood up to Pharaoh, just as they were courageous, not because of something good in themselves, but because they knew that God was good. May we also be a light in the darkness to those around us who do not know the Lord Jesus because we know he is good enough. So I encourage you today as we close, live 
If you know the Lord, live as who you really are. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Live in the freedom Christ has given you. Enjoy His goodness. Enjoy being obedient to His Word. Enjoy His presence and the opportunity to talk to Him in prayer every day. Enjoy that. And watch the Holy Spirit of God transform your life to be the light He created you to be. The book of Exodus confronts us with harsh realities. We're going to see really hard truths about the depths of evil in the human soul as we go. But this also serves as a great reminder that the need is great for deliverance. We need a power that can overcome the darkest and vilest of sin and evil. The need for rescue and redemption is great, but the good news is that Jesus the Savior is greater. Amen. Kyle's going to come up and close us with a song. And I just want to say, and if you're here today and something that was said, you know, the Lord spoke to you through his word today. If you want to talk, our team will be out in the lobby right after Kyle closes with this song. We're going to be out in the lobby. Come up and talk to us. Come find us. We would love to talk to you more about what was said today and what, and what this means and what the gospel of Jesus means for you. What it looks like to follow Christ Maybe you're pondering baptism. Maybe you feel like you do know the Lord, but you've never been baptized after you've confessed him as your savior. We would love to talk with you about that. Maybe you're ready to really take that dive and, and become a member and join this particular local church, this family of God known as Kernan. We'd love to have you. We'd love to talk to you about that as well. So whatever God is dealing with you in your heart, maybe there's, maybe there's that dark sin that you need to confess, whatever it may be, Listen to that voice of God speaking to you, the Holy Spirit leading you, and be obedient. Thank you all for being here this morning. I can't wait to continue this series looking at the wonderful story of God, the redemptive mission of Jesus in the great prequel to that story in Exodus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your grace we are so thankful that you did what Israel and Moses could not do. That, Lord, the, the sin in our own lives that seeks to rule and ruin us, Jesus, it has no place. Jesus, you said that for those of us who follow you and know you and love you, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we are truly free indeed. We are no longer slaves to sin. So Lord, even though we will struggle with the desires to sin, they're going to be there until we die and take our final breath or you return. Whichever happens first, Lord, we know that those sinful desires are going to be in our hearts. But Lord, we don't have to obey them. We don't have to submit to them. We are not. We are not ruled by them. Jesus, we are ruled by you. So Lord, I pray for every person in this room, every Christian who follows you and knows your name as their Savior, Lord Jesus, that you would give them your power through the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and yes to you.
Every single moment of temptation, every single desire that goes against your will and your design, every sin that seeks to rule, Lord, may we say no and say yes to what you have for us, the goodness, the abundant life that you give. Thank you, Jesus, for the freedom. Thank you for paying the penalty of our sin and raising from the grave to defeat the power that it had. It is no longer a power over us because of you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for setting us free. It's in your name we pray. Amen.